Have you ever put a puzzle piece together or a puzzle together? And I mean, one of the bigger ones, like a thousand piece puzzle. And you've put hours into that thing. And inevitably you come to the end and what? There's one piece missing, right? Or maybe you're working on a project at home and you're coming down towards the end and it needs a specific Allen wrench and you go and you grab your set of Allen wrenches and of course the one that you need is the only one missing from the whole set. You ever been there? Or maybe you're doing a yard project and you think you have everything you need to complete that project but as you're coming to the end you realize you should have gotten one more bag of seed, one more flat of flowers, couple more bags, whatever it is, there's just that sense of incompleteness. You've almost gotten it to the end, but that missing puzzle piece, that missing bag of mulch, that missing Allen wrench, that one thing that's missing, it just kind of messes up everything else that you've done, that sense of incompleteness. Well, the Bible says that in Jesus, as we put our faith in him, we are actually made complete. And it's not something where we have a piece missing and we're waiting to receive it. It is something that is actually our present reality. So I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, and I've titled today's sermon Complete, Complete. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We're in a sermon series titled Jesus First. Paul is just lifting up Christ through this epistle, showing the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, showing the Colossians that they don't need to follow the false teachings that were trying to creep into the church. They don't need to add anything from the law to Christ. They don't need to add anything from these Greco-Roman mystery religions. All they need is to press into the fullness of that is in Jesus Christ, and they will have all that they need. And that is still true for us today. We may be tempted to look at other things to add to Christ, to satisfy, to complete us. But the same thing that Paul told the Colossians is true of us today. We have all that we need in Jesus. We really, truly do. Do you know that you have an enemy that wants to do anything he can to convince you otherwise? Do you know that? So we're going to look at this truth of our completeness in Jesus Christ today. Look at Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. We're kind of picking up in the middle of a a paragraph here, a train of thought here. So I'm going to do my best to get you up to speed. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you. And what he's been talking about, again, is the sufficiency that we have, all that we have in Christ, pressing into that. And so he gives them a warning, beware or watch out, lest anyone cheat you. The word that we translate, most of your Bibles are going to translate as cheat you. It's actually a word that is most often used as taken away captive. Beware lest anyone lead you astray into captivity. You see, the battle is of the mind. It's about what you think. God had spoken. Adam and Eve had believed God's word. The serpent came and said, hath God indeed said? See, it's a battle of truth. And that hasn't changed. How does Satan launch fiery darts at you? Well, in your thinking. He's trying to get you to believe things that are contrary to God's word. The shield of faith quenches those fiery darts because you're believing God's word. And so Paul is saying, watch out lest anyone take you captive through what? 
through what you think, through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, Paul is not saying that all philosophy uh, is evil because Paul would actually go in and reason with people and, and argue with them and, and employ techniques of philosophy to try to win people to Christ. But he is speaking about a philosophy and an empty deceit that has man as its source instead of God as its source. Philosophy is just the love of wisdom. But a love for wisdom, a desire for knowledge that is apart from God, that is rooted and grounded in man, is what Paul is speaking against. And the Greeks knew that well. They, they spent their days just talking about ideas and concepts and wisdom and knowledge. So beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. And here he, here's the specific kind. He clarifies, according to the tradition of man. He's saying, look, don't let people lead you astray with these traditions of men that they've cloaked in, in spiritual talk. The apostle Paul in Galatians says that when he was putting believers to death, when he was putting Christians in prison, when he was separating families, he thought he was just following the traditions of his forefathers, the traditions of men. Paul was considered a good Jew following the traditions of men, which led him to stand by as Stephen was stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. It's not that traditions are evil, though, in and of themselves, because there are Christian traditions. There are doctrines that we've received that we want to pass on and we want to maintain. But what happens in our world, because we like to be in control, is we get a hold of things that we like. We get a hold of concepts that we think sound true. We get a hold of routines that give us a sense of control. And before you know it, we've elevated traditions of men, and we even put spiritual tags on them, and we're actually following things that we can control and traditions that make us feel comfortable rather than following Christ. It can happen to any of us. Paul's saying, beware lest you be led astray by these traditions of men, these empty philosophies, this vain deceit, this, this stuff that's not originating in God, it's from man, but it's also, look, according to the base principles of this world, you see, you, you not only have your own flesh you have to contend with, but you have a system of this world that is in opposition to God that would love for you to follow the way it is going. And here he clarifies, if you're not convinced, he says, and not according to Christ. Now, those traditions of men and, and of this world we can all fall prey into following these things instead of Christ before we know it. And usually you don't set out to do it. It just kind of happens over time. But the traditions of men and the things of this world, in the end, they just lead to despair and death. What do I mean by that? Well, Nietzsche, he was probably one of the most famous philosophers of the late 1800s. He's the one that really coined the term, God is dead. And he was putting forth a worldview and a philosophy of man that basically took God out of the equation. And so he tried to approach philosophy and science and education and morality. Basically what Nietzsche tried to do is he tried to construct a worldview and a system of thought that completely removed God from that system. 
and put everything back on man. And so then in the end, if something was wrong in society, if something was wrong in your community, man should also have the power and the ability to correct it because it all comes back to man instead of it all coming back to God. Nietzsche was a German philosopher, and you know who liked to read him? It's a man named Adolf Hitler. You know who also follows Nietzsche? Postmodernism that says whatever you feel like is good, do it. Morality is what you choose. And what the postmodernist and what the heathenists, the modern day liberals don't like to tell you, those that doubt God's word, those that want to write God out of the equation, what they don't tell you is that Nietzsche couldn't even live within his own framework. If you read about his life, when he was 44 years old, he had a complete mental breakdown. And from 44 until he died at 55, his mom and his sister had to take care of him. He went literally insane trying to construct a world apart from God. He could not live in the world he had constructed in his own mind. And it may not be going on to that extent, but that is exactly what's going on in our world today because, you know what we have going on in our world today? I've told you about this before. We have the first post-Christian generation in the history of the United States. The first generation ever in the history of the United States that does not identify as Christian. They're over it. We're going to decide what's right. And that goes back to those of my generation, Gen Xers not teaching them, not discipling those children. And that goes back to the ones before us, the boomers, many of which were working, and divorce was rampant in that generation. And so my generation got raised in broken homes, and many from my generation turned away from the church. And so now there's a generation being raised that has nothing to do with God. You know what is also at a record high? Suicide. There is, no, there, there is no way you can take the numbers of those that don't believe in God and the rise of suicide and look at those and go, oh, those aren't related. We cannot live in a framework of life apart from God because we were created for God. We have to have him or we literally are driven mad and to suicide. But there is a generation right now, I was reading a, a story, uh, I was reading a survey, not a story, by Lifeway on Protestant churchgoer views on the Bible. And there were several things that were very disconcerting to me. I mean, stuff we already knew, but as I read this survey, it came out more and more. Three out of ten people from their survey accept some truths from their Bible, but other truths, what they would call truths, don't fit their beliefs. Now, the Bible is true, you know, Dr. Criswell would say, from the table of contents from the maps. It's all true. The Word of God is God's truth. We don't, we don't go, well, I like that one, so it's true, but this doesn't fit my framework, so it's probably not really true. But what's happening is three out of ten people were saying that only some of the things in the Bible are true, not that all of the Word of God is true. And as they continued to do that survey, they found that 
50% of people said that biblical truths become obsolete as culture changes. So what that means is that the world in which I live in is telling me if the Bible's true or not. Do you see the problem with that? And then as you press in even deeper, of those that say that basically the Bible may not be true in certain points or that as culture changes, biblical truths become obsolete, out of that, that group, the highest percentage age-wise that believe that were those 18 to 34. 30% of the people that believe that as culture changes, biblical truth becomes obsolete. 34 of the people that believe that, 30, I mean, excuse me, 36% were from ages 18 to 34. So what that is saying is that our society is now allowing culture to determine if the Bible is true at a percentage that it never has before. And the younger generation that is coming up, more so than any other generation, has a higher percentage of people that say, my friends and social media and Facebook tell me if the Bible is true or not. That is a failure of the generations before them, is what that is. They have not been taught the Word of God or why the Word of God is true. It's not all on them. It's not all on them. A lot of it is, yes, but most of it is because they have not had anybody sit down and teach them the Word of God, how to follow it, and what it looks like in day-to-day -day life. And so what happens is they're doubting the sufficiency of Jesus, and they're going to these other things. And so when you come to Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world. That actually defines a whole lot of our world today. Many in our world have been taken captive, have been led into captivity by lies that have their root in the pit of hell from the mouth of Satan saying you can't really trust God's word. Jesus isn't enough. You need to go and get your reality, your truth from all these other sources. And our world is simply reflecting what happens when you cast aside the word of God. But there's hope. There is hope because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just as the Apostle Paul said, so get back to Jesus who is sufficient. I can say to us, church, Jesus Christ is still sufficient today. And so as we return to him and as we look to him and as we rest upon him and as we lift him up before our children and as we call these generations to know Christ and as we show these generations what it is to follow Christ, then there's hope. Because Christ is still sufficient today. The world is not one because the final word has not been spoken. You with me on that? God's not done yet. So that brings us to our first point today. Beware of doubting the sufficiency of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Look, beware of being led astray. And the way that you're not led astray is by looking at Jesus and seeing how sufficient he is. But what, what do I mean sufficiency? That's kind of a $5 word, right? Especially for, you know, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I mean, that's, that's kind of a big word to wrap your mind around. Sufficiency, what does that mean? How do, how do I really leave here and go, Jesus is sufficient, and I am so grounded in him, and I am so trusting in his sufficiency that I can, that I can combat the lies that are going to come at me? 
How do I do that? It reminded me of a, a trip one time I took off the coast of Galveston on a fishing boat. And we went out and we caught some little black tip sharks and some redfish and other stuff. And it was a it was a blast. I love being on the water, whether it's on a lake or the ocean, a kayak, a boat. I just love being on the water. Great fishing trip. We got back, went back home, had some great big old fish fillets and all that kind of stuff. But if you step back, when I step back and I thought about what I just did, it was really kind of weird because I, what I did is I walked up to a fishing dock at Galveston and I went into a building. I didn't know these people. They had a sign out front, so it looked legit. They had a boat out back. I guess they're legit. I don't know them. I paid them money to take me away from my family out into the ocean where I have no cell service. I'm paying someone to do this. I don't know their boat. I've not inspected their boat. I don't know their history. I don't know what they did the night before. But I'm paying them to take me away from everybody that I love out into the ocean with no cell service, and I'm trusting that they're going to bring me back safe and sound. I mean, when you step back and you look at it objectively, it's kind of like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? That's not safe. Not only am I trusting that, I'm trusting that while we're out there, they're going to have the right equipment on the boat. The boat is going to stay up. And, and there's all kinds of other things that they do beyond that for it to be a good experience. They have the right bait. They have snacks for us. When you know, catch a certain fish, you need help, they come get it off. They tag it. They put it in the cooler. In essence, what I am trusting is that as I go from the fishing pier and I step onto that boat, everything I need until I get back to that pier is going to be provided for me. Are you with me on that? It's going to be sufficient for me. Christ, as Lord of the universe, is not someone that we say, hey, um, can you just come help me with my life a little bit? I just need, like, I'm at uh, a AAA power. I need, like, some 9-volt power in my life. I just need an upgrade. Uh, Jesus, can you just kind of come shore up where I don't quite know how to do all this stuff? That is a misunderstanding of Christianity. Christianity is Jesus. I have no hope in it of myself. Yes, I have skills and talents and all this other stuff, but that's not going to really get me where, where I want to be, what I was made for. Only you can get me there. And so I take all that I am and I place it in all that you are and I trust that you will be sufficient to get me to where you want me to be. Is that settled in your heart? Do you have such a confidence in the sufficiency of Jesus that your heart can be steady in the storms of this life? You know, I think one of the greatest hindrances that, again, where I said we have an enemy that wants to tempt us away from this, is I think sometimes we think we have a fear that we're not going to get enough out of life. And so we are scrambling to either get what we think we need or keep what we have. Because I've got to get everything I can out of life. I can't miss these opportunities or, or I won't be satisfied. You follow me on that? I mean, I'm not the only one that's ever thought that, right? Tim McKellar said that if we have maybe five senses here on earth, 
we have no idea how great heaven is going to be. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll have 20 senses. In other words, the things that we think that we need to have in heaven, I mean in earth, the things that we think we need to have right now, in other words, the things that we go, I have to have this for my life to be complete, for my life to be satisfied, to have a good experience. I have to have this. These things that we think we have to have when we get to heaven, we're going to look at it and go, that was nothing compared to what I have now. I mean, that just is a fraction of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Now, does God give us things to enjoy now? Yes. Does God want us to, to work and to labor and enjoy our labor and enjoy the fruits of our labor and enjoy our days? Yes. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes but the things of this world were never meant to satisfy. Christ satisfies because Christ is sufficient. And what I have in him transcends this world. And in heaven there is far more in store for me than this world can even offer. So I can relax. Jesus is all that I need now and forevermore. And if I think I've missed out on anything in this world... Heaven is going to so outdo it, I won't even remember what I think I missed out on. See, that's what I have in Jesus. So because of all that I have in Jesus, beware. Don't let anybody else draw me away. Because if I'm being drawn away, I'm being drawn away to something that's lesser, that is not for my good, that will not satisfy, that will not sustain me. And youth, listen to me. You are living in a world, teenagers, you are living in a world that tells you everything that you need to have. You need to have these clothes, you need to have this music, you need to have these friends, you need to have these accomplishments. Do you ever stop and ask, does Jesus care about any of that? Before you let the world tell you what you need to look like and what you need to do, stop and Know who you are in Jesus and let him guide you in what he has for you. That's just one verse. I got to get going or y'all got to listen faster. I don't know. But let's, let's get to verse 9. Verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay, so Paul, the way Paul's done this argument is he's kind of already given us the Beware, and here's what you have. Now he gives us the reason behind it. So he's, the argument's a little flipped. A lot of times he gives us the reason, then he gives us the point. Here he gave us the point, verse 8. Now he's given us the reason in verse 9. For in him, in Christ, not in anyone else, in Jesus, not in Muhammad, Buddha, Allah, any priest, any pastor, in Jesus and in him alone dwells all the fullness, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all that God is, Jesus is, and Jesus took a body, and God dwelled in our midst, and people saw him and touched him, and here is eternal God walking among us in Jesus Christ. So why is Jesus sufficient? Why is Jesus all that I need? Because Jesus is all that God is, yet he took on the flesh and man without sin. He understands me. He knows me. He understands what it is to be tempted, yet without sin. He understands what it is to be mistreated. He knows what it is to live in this world to know weakness he understands it and he knows us 
and he knows our weakness, and he loves us all the same. And he is fully God. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's actually a lot going on in the Greek here. I'm going to have to move quick into verse 10. So uh, in verse 9, this fullness, just hold on to that. All that God is, Jesus is. And Jesus is God. Okay, now hold on to that for just a minute. And let me give you the second point. Press into the fullness of Jesus. So if you want to really understand what it is to be complete in God, number one, beware of, of doubting the sufficiency of Jesus. But number two, press into the fullness of Jesus. And we talked about this some last week, and we're going to keep talking about it because Paul keeps bringing it up, and we need to be reminded of it. But what do I mean by pressing into the fullness of Jesus? Well, have you ever been really interested in something that you begin to study or you begin to look at, and then you realize as you look deeper into it, you realize there's this whole body of knowledge that, that you didn't even know existed? I remember when I was younger, my friends and I, if, if somebody had a car, we were doing everything we could to make the car faster. And if we had a four-wheel drive, we were doing everything we could to lift it to put as big a tires under it as we could. I mean, that was, we spent time, I remember having my parents' driveway look like a junkyard with just parts strung everywhere. And, uh, and we were putting lifts on and turning distributor caps up and figuring out how to get a little bit more through that carburetor. And, and we were working on it. And I remember as I got working on it, realizing there's so much more here that I was never aware of. This whole new body of knowledge has been opened up to me. Too many of us just know Jesus on a surface level. And I believe what's also happened in the church today is many people have made the church responsible for their spiritual growth. I actually had somebody tell me that one time. Well, you know, this is a big deal to me. I mean, uh, you'd be my pastor. I, I mean, you're, you're responsible for my spiritual growth. But, oh, my goodness. Okay, let's back up and begin to talk about all the things wrong with that statement. As a pastor, I'm called to shepherd the flock. I'm called to preach and teach, to pray, to proclaim the gospel. In Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I am an equipper. But you know what? When you're saying that the church is responsible for my spiritual growth, you know what you're doing? It's a cop-out. It's saying that you're not responsible for growing in Christ. And somewhere along the way, there are many great programs that are a part of churches and that we do and things that have been a part of helping grow in Christ. But somewhere along the way, I think the average church member has gone Okay, well, I believe in Jesus, but it's the church's job to help me live right. No. <laughs> no, sir. No, ma'am. It is not. I will point the way. I will say I'm doing my best to follow Jesus. But you better be getting alone with Jesus Christ and growing in him day by day. Are you going to go to the persecuted church that's running around hiding from the authorities and, and say, are you growing in Christ? And they go, well, no, I'm not growing in Christ because my pastor hasn't come and helped me today. You understand how foolishness, how much foolishness that is, right? 
So it's time for us to take ownership of our own spiritual lives. Amen? Now, no organization grows above its leadership. And I would sure ever hate to be the reason a church doesn't fulfill its mission. God help me if I ever am. Get me out of the way. So a church needs good leadership. But the best, most life-filled churches I've ever seen that are doing missions and reaching the lost and discipling people, it's not as much about the leadership. It's been people taking initiative to make their church great. It's been the Sunday school teachers calling and checking on people that haven't been at Sunday school in a while. It's the people taking care of benevolence issues when they are able to. It's when you see a, a guest come in, asking them if they want to go to lunch and getting them to know them a little bit better. A church is great when the church is great. And the staff are going to work hard and we're going to do what we can, but each believer needs to take responsibility for their own Walk with Jesus. And you can press into the fullness of Jesus. And what you will find, just as I did when I was working on those cars, you'll go, whoa, there's so much more here than I realized. See, that's my point. If you're waiting on me to open up all those doors for you, man, you, you know, you can get a little bit each Sunday, 35 minutes each Sunday. That's not, I can't open up much. But each day, you have an opportunity to sit down and go, whoa, there's so much more here than I even realized. Wow, Jesus, I didn't realize how awesome you are. The depth of your love, how much more is there here that's opened up to me? You see, you can do that every day. Press into the fullness of Jesus. But lastly, verse 10, and this is really, uh, to me, the most important part of the message. I hope you can stay tuned here. And you are complete in him. Man, that's an awesome statement. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. What does that mean? Well, let, me, let me break it down for you. First of all, you're complete in him. We're going to come back to what that means. But this back end of the verse is so awesome because what it's saying is you're complete in him. You're, here's your state. And the reason why you're complete in him and the ways, reason why you'll stay complete in him is because he is the head of all principality and power. And as you look through Colossians, often when it talks about principality and power, it's also speaking of uh, demonic forces, spiritual powers that are against you. And so you are complete in Christ. That's your state. We're about to dive into that. And Jesus is the head of all principality and power. So what that means is... That the state that God has put you in, which is completeness, there is nobody that can undo that because Christ is over all. You see, if Jesus makes you complete, and if Jesus is the head over all principality and power, then what Jesus has done, no one can undo. Because he's king of the hill, he's on the throne, he's the king of kings, the lord of lords. And so when Jesus does it, it's done. The matter's settled. Man, isn't there some great confidence in that? I mean, we can't even mess that up. That means that I'm complete in Jesus, and I can't even uncomplete myself. God's done it, and he's going to keep it that way. That's good stuff. So what does it mean to be complete in him? Well, 
This is where the Greek comes in, and I'm going to very quickly try to help you understand the force of this. And you are complete in him. You are is in the present tense. You are currently and complete in him is a <laughs> perfect passive participle. And what it is saying, the perfect tense is a past tense. It's a completed action. But it is like this past tense, this thing that's happened, and it's like it's reaching forward to the present. I told you before that the aorist tense is kind of like a completed action that has present implications, and that's true, but the aorist tense is more like a snapshot. It's like this has happened, and usually it has present implications, but not all the time. I should have clarified on that. The present tense is absolutely, even if you look at um, a Greek text, a Greek uh, grammar book, it will say that the perfect tense is a past completed action that is bearing upon the present. So what this is saying, I mean, y'all are, some of y'all are like, quit nerding out, get to it. Here's what it's saying. You presently are complete, past tense, but it's a past tense that is saying something about now. What it is saying now is that it is, you are complete. And that complete is not only perfect tense, it is passive. You know what passive means? You've been acted upon. So you have not made yourself complete, God's made you complete. Perfect tense, it's settled, it's done. God has done it, passive. And then it is a participle, which is a verbal adjective. You know what that means? It's actually describing who you are as a child of God. And what that means is that if you have put your faith in Jesus, please understand the force of this. In the Greek, it is so strong. If you are here today and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, your current state is that God himself has made you complete and there is nothing that will undo that completeness because the matter is already settled and it will continue on forever, including right here and now, you are complete in Jesus. That's your current state. It's hard to get that just out of that verse apart from the Greek. It's very strong what Paul is saying. So then how do you reconcile that when you don't feel complete? How do you reconcile that when you're having personal struggles? How do you reconcile that when you're having struggles at work, marital struggles, someone's died, you're grieving, you experience loss? How do you, rec- how do you reconcile such an overwhelmingly strong statement about who you are in Jesus with life that's messy? How does that reconcile, and what does it have to do with how we live? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because this is really what everything's been building to, and I'm going to just talk a little bit more and then bring it to an end. Our third point is this, learn to be complete in Jesus. Learn to be complete in Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. Because God's word has said it, it's true. So you are what in Jesus? You're what? Complete. Okay. So because God's word has said it, it's true. Right? So whether I feel like it or not, that is my current present reality, and it will not change because that is what God has said. Are you with me on that? Okay. So then how do I do it? How does it work into my life? How does it apply to life in the situations where I don't feel that way? Well, You have to learn, learn, 
I said learn to be complete. What I'm, what I'm saying in there is you have to learn to walk in that completeness in Jesus. Let me explain it this way. I remember when I was 16, I had a cousin, or I have a cousin that's just eight years younger than me. And when he turned 16, he got a little two-wheel drive, two-seater Nissan truck that was standard. This was in the early 90s. I mean, it was about the cheapest truck you could get used, had like 200,000 miles on it. But man, we could go places in that. And that's all that mattered to a 16-year-old boy, right? I mean, we, we figured out ways to get that uh, two-wheel drive truck stuck in the mud and rock it out. We had all kinds of fun in that thing. And I didn't know how to drive a, a standard. I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. So he came and we went to this church parking lot and I was trying to work that clutch and, and just killing that truck and jumping all over the place. And he eventually taught me and I learned how to drive a standard to where later I had a Toyota Tacoma that was a stick shift, a standard transmission. And I was talking to a guy that was an 18-wheel driver and he told me about no clutch shifting. Where if you learn where the RPMs need to be to shift into another gear, you don't even have to use your clutch to shift. And I got to where I could drive my Toyota Tacoma with a 2-inch body lift and 32 by 1150-inch, <laughs> some of y'all are laughing, uh, BF Goodrich mud trains. I got to where I could cruise down the road and I could work through the gears without even using the clutch. Now, how did I go from just stalling out all over that church parking lot to running through the gears without even using the clutch? How did I do that? I had to work at it. I had to learn it. It took some time. It took a choice. It took a time when I had an opportunity to not do it. I chose to do it instead. So how do you learn to be complete in Christ? You learn to be complete in Christ. You become that completeness in your day-to-day -day walk when you move from going, this is what God has said I am, to therefore, this is the action I take. You see, you allow the truth of what God has said to then guide the way that you run your business, the way that you treat your family, the way that you spend your money, you learn it. It takes time because your flesh doesn't want you to do it and the world doesn't want you to do it. But each choice that you make out of your completeness in Christ, you are learning it. You're learning it. You're learning it. I had some friends that apparently were going to teach me. Well, they taught me how to ski. Uh, we went to Colorado with a college ski trip. They had skied all their lives growing up. I had never skied. I was in college. I was pretty athletic, so they just thought they could take me up to the mountain, give me a few tips, and I'd figure out how to ski. And I thought they were going to actually help me. But here's what their help was. When we finally got up to the mountain, and we get off the lift, and I'm already falling down, and I'm grabbing them and pulling them down. There's a pile of us there. And we get back up, and they didn't take me to a green slope. They took me to a blue slope. Because they thought, you know, it had a pretty good downward slope. And if I could just get going, I'd figure it out. And so I'm like, okay, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to ski. And they said, well, just point your skis like this. And they're, they're around me. And if you want to stop or, go, you know, kind of just turn sideways if you get going too fast. This is the advice I'm getting. And I'm like, okay. So I start going. I go about 10 feet. And I haven't fallen. So they just think, ah, he's got it. And they take off down the mountain. 
Needless to say, I pretty much fell about every 15 feet down the rest of the mountain. I had no idea what I was doing. It took time for me to learn that, to be able to rest in that, to take that knowledge and apply it to my life. And it's going to take that with us. That's where grace comes into the Christian life. We're not going to always get it perfect each time. But the question is, do you believe that God has made you complete in Christ? God has said it is true, so do you believe that? And are you learning day by day to operate? out of that completeness. I need to wrap it up. You know, uh, we have an enemy that doesn't want us to believe this, doesn't want us to rest in Jesus, doesn't want us to operate of our completeness in him. And I didn't even get into all the Greek. That word that you translate as complete can also be translated. In fact, it's a different form of the word fullness. So what it's saying is that Christ has is all the fullness of God, and in Jesus, all the fullness of who he is, is in us. And not that we're God, but we have all that we need for life. We are filled up in him who is the fullness of God, would be a better way to say it. I didn't say it great the first time. We are filled up in him who is the fullness of God. But your enemy does not want you to know that. Because if a believer actually believes that, man, you're dangerous to Satan. See? And so the enemy wants to keep us focused on what we need that we don't have, what God hasn't supplied, what we got to work so hard to attain or our life won't be fulfilled. We've got a lot of Christians who have never taken responsibility for their own spiritual life and are literally spending their entire lives chasing for other things to fulfill them. When the Son of God has left heaven, has come to this earth, and, and he didn't do that just to make us a little better. He went to a cross to take all of our sins, to take all of our insufficiency upon himself. To die not only for our sins, but to die in our place. And having died in our place, he is risen from the grave. And he is our completely sufficient Savior. And he does not come to your life to just help you be a little better. He is Lord. And that's a good thing. Because he's everything that we need. From now until all eternity. And if there's never been a time that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the way you receive him. It's by turning from your way, that's repentance, and looking to Jesus and saying, I believe in you. I take the way God's provided. And God promises us that as we turn from our way and we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins. We are made children of God. We are filled with God's Spirit. And that Spirit is working in us now, that Christ's life will come out through us now, that we will know the completeness that we are in Jesus. It's something that God does. That comes as we believe upon Him. Most of you, you've believed in Christ, you are saved, but maybe this morning you realize, okay, it's time for me to take some responsibility for my own spiritual life. Or maybe, you know, it's time for me to, man, this younger generation, yeah, it's time for me to get serious about doing what I can to invest in the younger generation, to show them what it means to follow Christ. 
Or maybe some of us, we just realized today how much of our time and energy we have been trying to be fulfilled by this world. And there is the depths of Christ that is just waiting for us to press into. Just waiting. Waiting for us to go, oh, there's so much more here than I even realized. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are God, that you are good, and that you call us to yourself. That in your goodness, you don't turn us away, you don't cast us off, but you say, come to me. May we do that every day, every moment. May we constantly press into you, look to you, seek to learn to live out of who you are and who you've made us to be. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that does not know you, that has not been changed by you, I pray that by faith they would call out to you. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, just tell God what's in your heart. No certain prayer saves you. It's faith in Christ that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you as you believe in him. Just tell God what's in your heart. Say, God, I, I, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And you've provided that Savior. His name's Jesus. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe Jesus rose for me. Please come save me because of Jesus. I believe in him. Make me complete in him. Help me to live for him from this day forward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word that is true. It doesn't matter what the world says. Your word is settled in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What you have said is true throughout all generations. May we cling to you. May we cling to your word. And I, Lord, I'm just excited for us to know the fullness of Jesus Christ. There's a lot to look forward to when we press into you. May we do so. Thank you for this time together to worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.